From the gloomy heights of the Llano Estacado, this is Disaster Tales. Hi, and welcome to Disaster Tales, the podcast about disasters and the issues that surround them. My name is Kate Fairweather. My co-host today is Barb Lonsky. How you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. It's May 2nd here in not-so-sunny Genoa. Lots of rain, everything's getting green, so it's it's a relief after a long, cold, nasty winter. So today, what are we talking about? So today we're talking about the Peshtigo Fire in Peshtigo, Wisconsin. It occurred on Sunday, October 8th of 1871, around 9 p.m. It was eclipsed by the fact that the Great Chicago Fire occurred on the same day but it was the deadliest fire to ever hit the United States. And uh, we'll be discussing that a little bit and how it affected the area all around it. And they actually jumped Green Bay. That's how big it was. That, yeah, that's so that's where fire. we're starting off. Okay. Well, first of all, mm-hmm. we'll get the Chicago fire out of the way. It supposedly actually did start at O'Leary's Barn, but they don't think it was a cow that kicked over a lantern. They think it was guys that were gambling might have kicked over a lantern. But it ended up and burned 2,112 acres, which included 17,500 buildings, and it killed an estimated 300 people. They only found about 120 bodies, but by the time they got counting, they realized there was about 300 people that were missing, so they think they burned. Because this made all the papers, people started sending money into Chicago and supplies, but nobody ever heard about the Peshtigo fire because Chicago was the city. And- yeah, much more publicized. There were actually other sites in that, that upper Midwestern area that had large fires that day. Um, Michigan's Door Peninsula, which is on the opposite side of Green Bay. Um, Holland and Manistee, Lake Michigan, uh, across Lake Michigan. And Port Huron on the southern end of Lake Huron. Uh, Chicago and, of course, other parts of Illinois. And... Um, there were several towns other than just Peshtigo that were damaged or devastated in these fires. There was a theory postulated, of course, there's always a theory, a scientific theory, that a comet with a double tails, Biela's comet, occurred on the same day that maybe that's what caused the fires in that upper Midwestern part of the country. But the theory has been disproven by the American Institute of Aeronautics and Aeronautics and Astronautics, as comet fragments cannot have sufficient heat or retain sufficient heat to start a fire on the surface. That they cool too much before they reach the surface to be able to start a fire. Okay, was that a double-tailed comet? The co- because I that's, believe it was double-tailed. I think that's what they said. That's what we had in um, the New Madrid earthquake. It was. It was oh, maybe weeks before. Maybe it was single-tailed. Yeah, but there was a meteor shower, I know. I'm going to look it up on on the on the web or net, the interweb. <laughs> Let's see. Ooh, the interweb or net. The interweb or net. <laughs> Let's see. This says, could a comet have started the Great Chicago Fire? Ironically, the O'Leary House was left standing on DeCoven Street. Good to know that even though her barn burned, her house hmm. did not. There is a comet theory. Yeah, you're right. The the Biela comet, but mm-hmm. it wasn't a it wasn't a double tailed. It wasn't double. Okay. Well, this so theory I is... must have picked that up from somewhere else in the after 
Yeah. <laughs> it's, well, Ethera. you get so confused with this comment and that comment. You know, come on. They're just... I know. There's always something. There's always They're a, so common. They're so common, Comic yes. <laughs> well, you know, there was a comment. Oh, there was a comment that was, uh, was it Haley's comment when Mark Twain was born. And he always thought he would mm-hmm. go out with Haley's comment when it came back. So I don't remember if he did or not. Mm. But So, yeah, comet theory pretty much disproved by actual science. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, you're right, although it starts to burn, pieces start to burn and heat up in the atmosphere. Once they get lower, they start, the heat starts to dissipate. By the time they hit the ground, they leave a dent, but they really don't have any heat left to them. So there's that. So then we move on to the actual, the actual causes of the fire, the cause of that particular fire. The area had been experiencing severe drought. They had had only one inch of rainfall since the early fall of 1870. So that in itself, there was a lot of uh, debris down from lumbering. And so there was a lot of leaves. There was a lot of tree, you know, uh, sawdust and things like that. People had been clearing the land and setting small fires to burn brush as they were cleaning the land. And then there was a huge uh, timber production coming out of Peshtigo. And the sawdust and timber debris called slash which is where they just cut everything and just threw it in a pile and set it on fire. So the whole area around Peshtigo had these small fires that had been burning um, most of the summer. Mm-hmm. And the drought conditions just provided tinder for it to just take off with the right wind conditions. Homes were built largely of the, of the lumber because it was plentiful. And they also were very dry, like a tinderbox. And so it was, the fuel was very much present in that, in that place. The town was, a, was built on a mixture of dirt and sawdust because everything that they brought in, people had sawdust next to their houses. They burned wood. It was, you know, they had a, um, just a real plenty, plenteous amount of those things. What happened was that the wind began to change. In Peshtigo, they mm-hmm. actually had a, a barrel and bucket factory. And that's where, uh, right. even though there was a lot of sawmilling, I think the, most of the dust was coming from the factory because I know that the before the the big fire swept through there was a small fire at the Peshtigo barrel and bucket factory I don't know what the name of it was for sure but and they had sent they actually rang bells to alert everybody in church on the Sunday before and they all and all the men went out and and put out the fire at the factory but there was sawdust everywhere right and that's the thing it it had been the, the conditions were such that even when they put the fires out and they did have one at the, at the bucket factory and also at the lumber mill, I believe on that end of town. Um, but what really fanned the fire and created the, the horrendous firestorm that came from it was that the wind had been blowing from the Southwest and then turned to the North from the Northwest with a cold front, which created that temperature inversion that rolled the heat into that cold front, and it produced a fanning of those flames. And so the fires just took off. I said there was an incredible amount of smoke in the air, so you knew there were a lot of fires in the vicinity. They kept the uh, Green Island Lighthouse lit all the time because the smoke was so thick that you had trouble with visibility. And even, even in that event, the George L. Newman was wrecked offshore because they just couldn't, didn't have the visibility to see um, the, the markers that they would usually navigate by. The crew was, was rescued and survived. When you have yeah. a cold front move in like that, 
and there's and the fires had been burning in the forest for weeks. What I was reading about the rainfall was that they had only had an inch of rainfall between July the 4th and the day the fire started. And I don't know if they got mm-hmm. even got that all at one time. But when you have a cold front come in and there's very warm air, that cold front pushes the warm air up. And when it cools, it starts to fall. And that's, what's to, what, that's what begins a thunderstorm. And it's also what begins a firestorm. The hot air gets pushed up. When it cools, it comes rushing down. It pushes out more hot air beside it. And so you have cold air coming down, hot air going up very rapidly, faster and faster as the fire grows. But then, because of the Coriolis effect, because the earth is turning, it doesn't just keep going straight up and down. It actually starts to curve around itself. And that's what starts the tornado. And this had a fire tornado, and not a twisty little fire tornado like we saw in in California last year, but a large tornado of fire. And that swept through towns and completely, I mean, houses were pretty much blowing up in front of it because it would, it would suck it all apart mm-hmm. and put all the debris would be on fire and then it would be blown out in different directions and everything that it touched caught fire. So that's how you get a firestorm. And I've been on the backside of a firestorm and Ooh, it was really, it was scary be. because I was... I was upwind of it, but I was driving parallel to it, and the air being sucked in by the rising heat was it was it was pushing my car sideways, and it was also there was rocks bouncing and hitting my car from the upwind side, so it was sucking these rocks off the ground into the air and hitting my car. So I got out of that just as mm. quick as I could. I'm sure. Well, and the thing the thing about it is that there was an account that talked about the fact that this tornado, when it came through, it picked up, it caught debris, on, things on fire, picked up the, the burning debris and threw it and, and people that it picked up in the process of the storm coming through and used them to ignite further on uh, in front of the storm and, and all around the storm. So it was this just incredible, you know, massive movement of air that was just picking up everything in its path and setting it on fire and sending it. And to set more fire in front of it and behind it, so it was it was just devastating. It burned one million two hundred thousand acres. Yeah, that's... which is just mind-boggling. Mm-hmm. Roughly the size of Delaware. Yeah, that's yeah, that's you know, a lot. Um, on both shores of Green Bay, on the Michigan side and on the Wisconsin side, it burned up through the towns along that that area. And then of course the Peshtigo river, Peshtigo river that runs through the town of Peshtigo, it jumped the river, actually burned across the river because there was debris and there were people who had tried to, you know, hide in the river. And many of them were, were killed because they were not deep enough in the water or because debris was thrown on them that was on fire and hit them and knocked them out. And they were able, and they drowned. Some died of hypothermia because the river was only about 40 degrees in October. That was the average temperature of the river water, which is darn cold if you try to get into 40-degree water. Yes, it is. And the hypothermia killed a lot of people, especially young people, because they just didn't have the body fat and the, and the metabolism to be able to maintain body temperature, even in the face of this incredibly hot fire that was going over them. The fire 
was burning over them, but the, but the heated air that was, that was going along in front of the fire, even if you were in an open space, that heated air would be going over you. And some of that air was heated up to as much as, what, 2,000 degrees, which is definitely enough to right. incinerate remains. And also, it's, it's, it's hot enough to melt iron, and it's hot enough to melt right. ceramics. So people don't have a mm-hmm. whole lot of chance unless they can get someplace that's safe and stay down underneath the heat. One of the accounts that I read of the of uh, Peter Perna, a priest, a itinerant priest from Canada, wrote that the women in the river thought that they could submerge and come back up out of the water and that their wet hair would keep them from, from burning. But he said the moment their heads came above the water, the, the temperature of the air was so hot, it dried their hair and ignited it. And so they were constantly having to be underneath the water and, and just coming up long enough to get air and then go back under again. Mm-hmm. And the air itself was very toxic. There was a lot of toxic fumes in it from the products of combustion and from, you know, the different things that were burned in the city itself. So it was incredible that people actually did survive this firestorm. A lot of people suffocated. Yeah. You would think that that much heat would have warmed the top layer of the river, but apparently it didn't. The heat, even though it was being pushed sideways, kept attempting to rise. And so it never actually heated the water very much. And I know there was, they had to stay in the water for five hours, a lot of those people. And it was Mm -hmm. overnight. And Mm -hmm. I know there was several accounts of parents holding children in the water and having to keep them in the water so they wouldn't burn. And then they died of hypothermia. And so they lost their children, even though they were right. in the in the water. And and you get so numb and hypothermic in the water, anyways, that they may not have even known the children had passed. They might not have been able to hold on to them. There was, I don't know. I, I and the shock of it. Um, yes, the shock of just having that kind of an, an event happen, and then combining that with the hypothermic condition. Many of the people were just completely out of it when they came out of the water. A lot of them got to the edge of the river and didn't want to go in the river, presumably because they knew it was cold and also because they couldn't swim, Mm -hmm. a lot of them. This priest saw that the only way that these people were going to survive was to be in the water. And he he said in his quote, um, being used to baptism and baptizing people, he began to run down the riverbank and push people into the water. And so then the people kind of came out of their fog and realized that the only way they were going to survive as the firestorm approached from both sides of the river was to get in the water. And so people began to get in the water. And those who went out into the deeper water fared much better than those who were closer to shore because of the heating of the water at shore, because the ground was superheated, but also because of the toxic gases that were being... um, Carbon monoxide. uh, Close to the shore, there was a lot... Mm -hmm. Right, the toxic, yeah, and so people were were dying of suffocation, and um, and then their their remains, a lot of them were burned, and so it was um, just an incredible scene. He talks about just watching; it's just like a wall of fire that they they just had no way to escape it. People got onto the bridge, and thinking they were going to get to the other side of the river and people from the opposite side of the river thought that it would be safer on the other side of the river on the east and the west and so they were fighting back and forth not even really knowing what they were doing and unbeknownst to them the the bridge caught on fire and all of those people that were on the bridge 
the majority of them perished when the bridge collapsed into the water, either being killed by debris or being consumed with flame. And um, the people in the water watched as this happened. And it was just so devastating that the people just didn't even know where to go. There was nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. You know, there was one little area like a valley type cove. It was surrounded by sand hills that the priest had wanted to get to originally, but because of the, the rapid way that the storm spread, he wasn't able to get there. People who resorted to that area actually survived and were, you know, marginally injured by the fire. But the people who were at the, at the river and at the river's edge, particularly that didn't want to get in the water perished from the fire. There were people who just suffocated. I have a firsthand account of someone who ran to that bridge. Her name was Amelia Desrochers, or Desrochers, D-E-S-R-O-C-H-E-R. I think it's Desrochers. And she was young, and she said, we went out, and the wind was blowing sand so hard that it punched my limbs. People told us to go to the river. A man at the bridge ordered us to get on board a flat-bottom barge on the river. But as the boat traveled down the river, it caught fire, and many jumped out and drowned. Uh, Amelia remembers telling her mother that she looked out the boat's window and said, Look, it's snowing fire three miles out in the bay, which would be Green Bay, I believe. On our way back after the fire died down, we Mm -hmm. passed a place where many dead people laid out on blankets by the river. She said beside them was a little baby crying. I'll never forget that. And so even before the the bridge collapsed... um, they were trying to get people off of it and into the water. And unfortunately, those flat-bottom barges, they were made of wood too, so they caught fire as well. Mm-hmm. Well, the description that this um, Father Pernan gives of this fire, there's a few things I, I just want to uh, share with you from this book because it's just incredible how they describe it. In 1871, it was distinguished by an unusual dryness. Farmers had profited of the latter circumstance to enlarge their clearing, cutting and burning wood that stood in their way. Hundreds of laborers in construction and railroad acted in like manner, availing themselves to both axe and fire to advance their work. Indians scour these forests continually. The night they kindle a large fire wherever they may chance to halt, knowing the fire will keep away animals at a distance. And so this talks about how they just were kind of carelessly lighting these fires without any regard to the fact that, you know, they could cause a problem later down the, um, the way it says the wind, uh, it was the wind that turned the fire into a disaster. Um, in the presage of the storm, it said that, uh, the air was filled with silence. It was just like silent. And, um, it seemed to afford grounds for fear of a sudden gale. On the other hand, passing and repassing the street, countless young people bent on amusement, laughing and singing were particularly indifferent to the menacing aspect of nature. So they didn't really have any warning of the the, the big fire. They had had several precursor fires where they had to go out and I get the, at the barrel and, and the sawmill to put out fires in the week before and had just um, adverted disaster on the 27th of September by putting out a fire. And then again, um, on Sunday evening, it says after church, about a half hour death, a death like stillness hung over the doomed town. The smoke from the fires in the region was so thick as to be stifling and hung like a funeral pall over everything. And all was enveloped in Egyptian darkness. 
So there was this, this foreboding and this incredible um, heaviness in the air as the fire approached. It looked on the horizon like this huge, bright red ball in the sky, but there was no warning that it was moving so quickly toward them. I was thinking about that stillness before the fire that he was talking about. And it tells me a couple of things. Mm -hmm. One of them is that there was no air movement. So the cold front hadn't come through yet and the air was stagnant. The other thing it's telling me though, is that Mm -hmm. the animals weren't there. There weren't, he didn't talk about hearing birds and he didn't talk about, you know, hearing creatures in there or even dogs Mm -hmm. barking or anything. He didn't talk about any of that. So it makes me think that, that, the Bambi effect was going on, that people were, that the animals had actually were trying to find some place that was safe away from the fire because the fires had been burning in the woods for, um, I believe, for weeks. There was small fires off in the woods. Mm -hmm. And the smoke eventually Mm -hmm. uh, reached as far away as Ohio. Right. And it says that the first flames of the forest fire quickly became a firestorm. It reached the town limits of Peshtigo about 9 p.m. on Sunday evening. These were not the flames of just one fire, but of dozens. So they all kind of converged on that particular area, that particular town. Mm-hmm. G.T. Tinsdale gave a report of what happened when he, the fire hit. Um, Father Pernan had told everybody to get to the river that he could get born. And then this man had the same thought that he would go to the river. And he says, what follows beggars all description about the time the fire reached the Peshtigo house, I ran out the East door. And as I stepped down the platform, the wind caught me and hurled me some distance onto my head and shoulders and blew me on my face several times on going to the river. Then came a fierce, devouring, pitiless rain of fire and sand, so hot as to ignite everything it touched. And then it goes on to talk about the fact that they would later estimate the wind blew at 100 miles an hour, at least 100 miles an hour, more than that probably, and that the approaching wall of fire of the town seemed to be that the fire fed itself. It didn't really need fuel. It just continued to approach even, you know, just the, the fact that it was blowing and the temperature reached over 2,000 degrees or 2,000 degrees. So mm-hmm. it was one of those things that people thought they were okay. Earlier in the day, they were walking around and enjoying themselves. There had been fires burning around town for months. And then suddenly it caught them unaware. And many of them were paid with their price with their life that they weren't aware well, I have uh, another account from a man named Charles Lam- Lamp, who I believe he changed his name from Lemke. He was a German immigrant. And on the night of the fire, his wife went into labor. So he hitched the horses to the mm-hmm. wagon and loaded his family and was driving when the frightened horses fled to Peshtigo ahead of the wall of flame. Carl ran after them, ignoring a burning in his side and throwing off his shirt without slowing. A falling burn tree or part of the rail fence hit one of the horses. He finally caught up and ran past the wagon to catch the frightened horse who chucked his harness and was running away. His wife screamed and he turned to see the family and the other horse engulfed in flames. They were dead before he could reach the wagon. Carl ran to a shallow brook nearby and threw himself in. Afterwards, he found a group of survivors. He was blind and had a gaping hole in his side, which the doctor told him that they'd never be able to close and showed him how to to treat it. Uh, eventually they said his skin came back with pink, shiny skin that you get when you have a burn. I saw a lot of reports. Well, first of all, seeing your family go up like that was, is just 
beggars my imagination. And the other thing is that he is not the only person who re- reported blindness after this fire. I think that the heat, right. the heat and the ash um, must, have, must have put strain on the eyes or swelled them up closed or something like that because most of the people that mm-hmm. did report it had their eyesight returned. But, uh, yeah, I can imagine that, that there's enough heat and there's enough crap going into your eyes that you won't be able you can't see. It's like a flash burn. Mm-hmm. From like a flash burn. I know um, the one priest, Father Pernan, said that he was blind for two or three days afterwards because mm-hmm. of the swelling from having his eyes open in the heat, in the intense heat, and it caused a reaction um, of his cornea and stuff. It says here he's talking about uh, this. Father Pernan talked about the fact that his church and his home was still standing, and he said a strange and startling phenomenon met my view. It was that of a cloud of sparks that blazed up here and there with sharp detonating sound like that of powder exploding uh, and flew from room to room as he's describing how his building was destroyed. I understood that the air was saturated with some special gas and I could not help thinking if that gas lighted up from mere contact with the breath of hot wind, that would be when the fire would come into actual contact with it. So there was a, there was because of the inversion, the gases that were trapped in um, the area from the burning, the products of combustion, say like turpentine and different things like that, mm-hmm. actually ignited and exploded with the, the force of a, of a bomb, basically. And so it does say that it is like a nuclear explosion, it, mm-hmm. that it is like a natural nu- nuclear explosion when you have a, a firestorm like that. Well, I would imagine if it was exploding room to room, what he was actually seeing was like flashover, that it would, the hot air would meet the, the relatively cooler air in the next room, and that the fire would mm-hmm. explosively consume all the oxygen in that room. And so that would, that would be my guess on what that, that was as well. Um, besides just right. gases, I think that just the difference of more oxygen and more flammable material in each room would make it move explosively. Right. And he, he talks about, of course, the situation on the bridge and at the river, you know, people were running through town. They didn't know where to run because it was fire all around them. Mm -hmm. It encircled the whole, the whole town. And uh, he said that the only light available in the dark of the night was that given off by the fire itself. And that was hardly comforting nor was it really illuminating because at the time the air was so full of sand and ash that it created a fog that made the light turn back on itself, creating an eerie glow that seemed to taunt the dying and surviving like an open mouth of hell. Wow. So I'm, I can't even imagine what kind of a, the fire, what that must have been like just to know that it was yawning there before you and you had nowhere to go, no place to escape. Yeah, and I was thinking about that as well, which is always dangerous. But one of the things I was thinking was that nowadays, when we can see fires that are going on somewhere or, you know, or see movies with fires in them and whatever, then uh, we actually Mm -hmm. don't have to overcome the shock of seeing a massive fire when we're in that situation. So that gives us a few extra moments of being able to make a rational decision. Because when you're, I mean, a lot of the people thought it was the end of the world, and mm-hmm. which for, for some of them it actually was. But, but because it was so overwhelming to see something so 
huge and frightening and different. I think that it is to our advantage nowadays that we, we can view these things from a place of safety. And, it, and, and if it happens to us, then we've already seen it. We don't have to overcome the shock. We can actually start thinking about, okay, what do I need to do? Which can be good or bad, actually, because mm-hmm. I think maybe the fear that you need to have might not be there if you're familiar. You know, that familiarity might prevent you from doing taking action when you really should. I know people who chase storms a lot of times, you know, <laughs> they get too close because of that familiarity and it, and it kills them. Well, that and the fact that they're adrenaline junkies. Right, right. So it says here, women with long, thick hair learned that no matter how often they immersed themselves in the water, the fire would dry and ignite their hair almost as soon as their heads came out of the water. Once in the water up to our necks, we thought we'd at least be safe from the fire, but it was not so. The flames darted over the river as they did over the land. The air was full of them, or rather the air itself was on fire. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering, how, how wide was the river there? That's what I'm wondering, how wide and how deep. Yeah, I don't know how wide it was there, um, or really how deep. I'm not sure I didn't get that, those details, but I'm thinking it had to be deep enough to navigate um, with boats because they had the, the industry there that they would have to move things up and down the river mm-hmm. to get them where they needed to be. And, of course, Green Bay, that's a very deep body of water. Right, and and it was attached to that. So it was probably fairly wide as it was going towards its mouth. So you've got to imagine how far the fire had to jump. Of course, it was approaching from both sides at the same time, but still it did occasionally jump from one side to the other. This thing was Mm -hmm. so overwhelmingly frightening. I have a letter here from a woman whose name is Martha Newberry Coon, and she later... She was writing to her sister, Mary Coon Powell. She says, I have bad news to tell. Charlie and the two little boys are gone. Oh, what a horrible death. It was a tornado of fire swept over the farming district and on the Peshtigo village. It came on us very suddenly. Charlie and the family started to flee. They got about a half mile from home when they went into a little pool of water. Charlie and the two children had some things he was trying to save. He passed through the water thinking to get farther from the fire. Grace turned back to the water and was saved. In the water were brother William and his family, his wife and baby, his wife's sister. They were all, they all remained to tell the tale. And then she says, oh, Mary, it was truly a night of horror. She describes the rain of fire and that the air was on fire. And she thought that was going to be the end of the world. She says, my father, four brothers, two sisters-in-law and five children two of Grace's, and three of Brother Walter's. Ah, dear Mary, we were almost crazy. No one can hardly keep one census together to write you anything. So she was so overwhelmed by everything that happened. And it, and it goes on throughout the rest of the letter is that she, her, her thoughts are very scattered and she has trouble telling the story, even in writing. And then she says, Grace counted 89 dead bodies within the space of a half mile. There were probably 300 dead. Oh, Mary, Grace has no clothes. I either. Our eyes are all burned, but we're better now. Grace has poultices on her eyes, and they're getting better. George, Eni, and I were saved by fleeing to the river. And she lost pretty much almost all of the people in her extended family because she had, she had brothers and sisters. She had brothers-in-law. She had nieces and nephews and her own children. And um, 
Yeah, it, it, it was it was difficult for her mm-hmm. to comprehend because it, and it's obvious in the writing because it's it's disjointedly written. And this is actually on a website called mm-hmm. PestigoFireMuseum.com. There are a lot of firsthand accounts that are listed on that. Mm-hmm. I have a, a one that, a description that Father Perning gave. He, of course, was in the river. There were several people there around him. And um, he said, not far from me, a woman was supporting herself in the water by means of a log. So apparently she couldn't swim or she was needing to be supported by the log. After a time, a cow swam past. There were more than a dozen of these animals in the river, impelled thither, impelled thither by instinct, and they succeeded in saving their lives. The first mentioned one overturned its, in its passage the log to which the woman was clinging, and she disappeared into the water. And he's watched and couldn't do anything because he wasn't close enough. He says, I thought, lost, I thought her lost, but soon she emerged from it, holding with one hand the horns of the cow and throwing water on her head with the other. How long she remained in this critical position, I know not. But I was told later that the animal had swum ashore, bearing the burden safely, the human burden safely with her. And uh, and what had threatened to bring destruction to the woman had proved to be her means of salvation. Mm-hmm. It's not the first time we've seen cows save people in disasters. That's right. <laughs> I know in Audrey, Hurricane Audrey, there was, a, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so. well, you know, that sometimes animals have better instincts than humans, and uh, that gal was smart enough to grab on and hold mm-hmm. on. See, he talks about the fact that for less in less than a quarter of an hour, the large beams were lying blazing on the ground. The rest of the building was either swept, burned, or swept off into space. And he's talking about the barrel factory there, mm-hmm. the huge barrel factory that was on the the bank of the river. They went within a within a quarter of an hour, it was gone completely. Mm-hmm. Well, let's remember this was just six years after the end of the Civil War, and so right. I don't think they even had a fire brigade in Peshtigo. I think it was mostly just a farming community where there was a factory and people lived in the area. The men tried to put out the fires, but it was a hopeless cause. Yeah, well, they did put out the first the um, fire the first day at the factory. Mm-hmm. And then there's another account here from uh, Mrs. Carrie Jackson Hop. She said, my uncle carried my brother with him somewhere we didn't know, but my mother took my father's advice and hurried into an an open field that had been plowed. So there was nothing that could burn anywhere around her. She said her mother and I were saved, although mother told me that my blanket caught fire about 45 times and that she had to beat it out with her hands. Her father had been sick and so stayed in the house, but when it caught fire, he left his bed and hurried to join his family in the field. We were saved, but my uncle and brother were lost, she said. My father found one of my brother's shoes and some ashes. Most of the ashes had been blown away, but we know that they are dead. That image to me is is a really tragic and shocking one as to where you find parts or pieces, you know, like you found a shoe and then everything past that was, was incinerated. And so you know that, that that's what happened to the person mm-hmm. that was in that shoe. It says here that few uh, few who sought w- the warmth of the water closer to shore, where the fire heated the shallow depths, this is along the bank of the river, mm-hmm. paid a high price, for the air there was filled with hot poisonous gases that burned their lungs and eyes. 
by 11 p.m., the entire village was on fire. So within two hours, the complete mm-hmm. it was completely engulfed in flames. And no one was, was able to make any effort to stop the fire. In fact, the heat was so high that the water in the bottoms of deep wells boiled until they were dry, hmm. sometimes killing the people who sought refuge in their once cool depths, while others who had hidden in root cellars and basements found themselves in red-hot ovens instead. Bodies in such places would not be found, but replaced instead with skeletal remains curled into their final throes of agony. Some people were last seen diving into damp underground culvert to escape the flames, but those looking for them later would find only a pile of ashes. Mm. And many of those ashes were swept away in the fire. So they really don't have an accurate count. They say anywhere from 1,500 to 2,000 fatalities. At the time, the population of of Peshtigo was approximately 1,179 people, I believe it was. There were also itinerant workers who were there working in the lumber industry and also at the factory. Okay, in 1870, the census said that there were 1,749 people in the town of Pushtigo. And that doesn't include the outer, you know, like the out, outlying area. So mm-hmm. they yeah. had more than 350 bodies that were buried in a mass grave because there were no relatives alive to claim them or to identify the bodies. So that in itself is a horrible thing that there wasn't even anyone left to claim the bodies. Well, right. If the entire family is gone, you know, who's going to do it? One of the ways that they determine that is that they, they find the remains and they count those. And then they start counting the people who are missing. And after a while, if those people don't turn up somewhere, then they're, they're, dec- they're considered deceased. I know that when I was at the campfire last year, in uh, where paradise burned at first there was like a, a thousand people missing and i think when we recorded it was several hundred and it turned out that there was at the end when fi- everybody finally checked in there was there was very few people left missing but you have to you got to get a hold of somebody and tell them you're alive or else they're going to count you as dead right because all they were finding there they were tr- they had dogs out trying to find enough remains to do DNA on. And they were finding, you know, like pieces of pelvis because that was thick enough to where some of it had survived and maybe some teeth and things like that. But there's, you know, incineration is a very good way to dispose of a body. So there's nobody there to count. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It says here, one man wrote standing out on the Peshtigo Road, he was standing outside of the town and witnessing the fire, that the fire swept through the swamp and destroyed several outbuildings in the rest of the Boone Company's place. Dr. Hall, together with a a large barn containing nearly 100 tons of hay, the hay was the property of Mr. Bentley of Marinette, and then the direction of the wind changed rapidly, blowing from several points of the compass alternately. So that must have been the whirling effect of the wind, first from the southwest, then the west, then back to the northwest, then back again to the south and during which time they were visited by a series of whirlwinds which showered cinder sparks in every conceivable direction. Mm-hmm. This fire having partly spent its fury, cries of distress were heard down in the river in the direction of the mouth of the river. Steam and whistles and, and mill of the mills and tugs in the harbor blew the first alarm, and every man that could be spared went to the scene of the disaster. So they brought people in as quickly as they could to help the people who had been injured and and burned. Uh, And the men worked with the energy of despair. 
Mm-hmm. You know, that was... They said that they described these things called fire balloons. They were large black balls that seemed to float in the air, uh, in the sky, until they bumped into something. And at the time that they contacted something, they would explode and incinerate whatever they had touched. They've never been completely explained, uh, but many scientists believe they were bubbles perhaps of superheated pine sap or perhaps filled with methane gas or some similarly flammable substance. While many people claim they saw these balloons around Peshtigo that night, no one at any similar fire before has ever noticed such a phenomenon. But I think because of the the environs, the way, you know, the, the trees and the forest around it, that the fuel for the fire may have produced those toxic gases to mm. produce the fire balloons. Yeah, and there there must have been, in order for them to be like balloons, there needed to there needed to be some kind of difference between what was in it and the air around it. So I don't know if the blackness of the balloons would have been caused by smoke, if it was uh, at a higher or lower temperature than the surrounding air, or, I, I mean, I can't imagine. I really don't know that much about aerodynamics and fluid dynamics, but I think that I've, yeah, I don't know. It's re- I think it's a really interesting mm. phenomena, and... Um, I don't have any idea how to explain it. Right. Well, I mean, they feel like it may be gas. I mean, because if you think about acetylene, like if you put acetylene in a balloon and you, you know, make it ignite, it explodes and you have a fireball. So maybe it was, you know, just the gases that were accumulating from the the products Mm -hmm. of combustion. So So like a bubble, um, a bubble of death. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So... Father Pernan said the heat heat my eyes greatly, though at the moment I was almost unconscious of the circumstance. The intense pain they now caused joined with a feeling of utter exhaustion and kept me at length for the length of time extended on the earth. People came out of the river. It was now like 40 degrees ambient temperature around, you know, because it was late October or early Mm -hmm. October. The river itself was about 40 degrees. And so these people were suffering from hyperthermia after being in the water for five hours. And many of them came out and just laid on the ground because the ground was still hot from the fire passing mm-hmm. over. And he said that that kind of helped him a little bit. And uh, But the wet clothes were problematic. The people had to, t- to kind of throw modesty to the side, he said, and, and dry their clothes because if they remained in the wet clothes in that temperature, they would certainly have succumbed to the hypothermia. Mm-hmm. It says they, they just... People just were looking for any way that they could to get dry and to to get warm. Um, It says some of the men, uh, after a time, went over and found um, in a field some cabbages that had been in a a neighboring farm field, and they were completely scorched. But the men removed the outer part, cut the inner part into thin slices, and distributed them to those who were capable of eating. A morsel of cold raw cabbage was not likely to prove much use in our then state of exhaustion, but we had nothing better at hand. Mm-hmm. When relief started coming from the nearby towns, the first thing they do did was they sent a wagon full of bread and I can't remember what else, but they sent yeah, bread and coffee coffee. And, that was it. I have, yeah. So mm-hmm. they sent a wagon load of bread and coffee. When they delivered those, they took the worst of the, uh, 
of the injured people and took them back to the city that the nearby city that they came from and were treating them there. And mm-hmm. then they sent and more wagons later with more assistance. But, but the nation was focused on Chicago and Chicago received a tremendous amount of assistance, including enough money from the United Kingdom to create the Chicago free library system instead of the you know paid membership mm. libraries they'd had before the fire. But Peshtigo and the surrounding area, like Sugarbush and Marionette, they, nobody knew about that, so only local people were around mm-hmm. to send them assistance. I have another account here that talks about those balls of fire. And it says, When balls of fire started coming down from the sky, my mother and father took us to the spring and wrapped us in wet quilts. This is from Wesley Duquette, who lived near Sugarbush. He said, we had a team of oxen. One of them stayed with us at the spring and the other straight away and burned. We had a shed of colts and you could hear them thrashing as they burned. My brother wanted to open the shed door, but my sister was afraid he would burn to death too. So they didn't let him. Uh, he says, my mo- the next morning, my mother and father were temporarily blind. I went to see Mrs. Reinhardt, a neighbor, and I found her dead. He recalled, I liked her a lot and that really hurt me. Her shawl had not completely burned, so I took a corner of what was left and kept it with me for many years. There was a a girl named Mary Keith. Um, This was after the the fire. Her father had come to town to help bury the dead. There just weren't even people there to help to bury those who had had died. And um, Mary remembered, she said, my father helped pick up the dead and make rough boxes as, uh, as there were not enough caskets. He put as many as five of a family in one casket as they were just bones. They found people who were not burned at all, just suffocated. Many saved themselves by going into water with blankets wrapped around them, and some got down into wells and were saved that way. Chickens sitting in their perches were suffocated, not burned, and fish were on top of the water from the intense heat. Father said he found a young lady lying beside a log. She wasn't burned at all, but she had such a nice head of curly hair he couldn't resist cutting a lock of it off. He always carried that in his purse and frequently showed it to us. My parents took a family and a family of five who were burned and cared for them until they recovered. No, oh, that's great. So there was, and there was some looting, some looting that occurred. Um, there was a young man who decided he was going to come in and loot and they caught him and were going to hang him, but they didn't have a rope to hang him with. And so someone found a logging chain and put it around his neck, and they were trying to find a place to hang him from because there was nothing left to hang him from. And it said that the young man pleaded so desperately to have his life spared that they did go ahead and let him go and told him not to do it anymore. And (laughs) the father, Pernan, said, well, I think it may have just been to frighten him, you know, but that was a real thing. People who came and just started to, you know, take people's possessions that were whatever was left, you know. That still happens today. I've been to disaster after disaster where people tell me, yeah, well, I had this, and they wouldn't let us come back, and somebody came in and stole, you know. They stole my gold that was in my fireproof safe that melted, or they came in and took took my generator that I had. And, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. that's, I, yeah. Uh, people that do that are, I don't understand I have an, I have an, and I think you do too. We have a natural affinity for helping people who need it and Mm -hmm. really can't fathom the mindset of somebody who goes in and and steals from them. I know. It's just, it's 
depraved, mm-hmm. <laughs> very depraved. Did you? Uh, I, I sent you an article with a picture of Father Pernan in it. He, he's one of the main people in this book that I have. But he gave an account of bringing the tabernacle from the, his church. Mm-hmm. He had loaded it on a cart with some of the possessions from the church, and he managed to save the tabernacle from the church and carry it while dragging his wagon to the river. In the jostling in the bedlam, the wagon was pushed into the water and the tabernacle floated away. The next day it was found resting upright and dry on a log in the river. The sacred species was safe inside. (laughs) And then there was another account of a group of nuns in a neighboring town who they were convinced that they were not going to let their shrine be destroyed by the fire. And it said that they walked in circles praying around the, the shrine and continued to do so. And everything around them was was destroyed, but the shrine was saved. So I guess there were some miracles that happened yeah. in that, that place. That oh, like. Our Lady of Good Help, that's what it was, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I think, you know, in any situation like that, there are, I mean, I know you've seen a number of them in your experience with FEMA, miracles where people should not have survived or something happened that made them do something different than they would have ordinarily done to preserve their life. And it was, it was what actually needed to happen because maybe the place they were going to hide was destroyed or, you know, something like that. I remember being at a tornado in Little Rock, Arkansas, and I went into the neighborhood where the tornado went through and it was leveled except for one church. And in that church, the choir had been practicing when the tornado came and they all got in the center of the church and started praying together. And after the tornado went through, they tried to get out of the church and they couldn't because there were cars that had been thrown up against the doors. And so when they finally got out, they realized that it was the only building standing for a quarter mile in any direction. And, Mm -hmm. and that's another one of those situations where that, that should not be there, but maybe the power of prayer is what kept it standing. Yeah. Well, I know we had a tornado come through here in 1988. Um, It came across the road from our house. It was probably a Category 1. Hit behind the house and tore tore off like three large trees, probably six or eight to ten inch in diameter. Mm -hmm. Snapped them off. And we were in the house and I saw it, I saw it come and I got the kids and we got on the floor downstairs and I just started praying, God, mm-hmm. please hold this house on its foundation. And it literally felt like the house was breathing. It felt like it was moving up and down. Mm-hmm. And the tornado skipped over the top of the house, hit the driveway in front of the house, snapped off two or three trees, broke the windshield in my vehicle, and then went up the road and snapped off trees on both sides of the road, um, in, in its path and then lifted and went back into the sky. Mm-hmm. And uh, we called, we called the road department and said, Hey, you know, you got to come and clean up all this stuff. And they're like, what are you talking about? And I said, we had a tornado and they said, no, you, you didn't. There's nothing like that in the County. <laughs> well, when they came over the Hill and saw all the trees in the road and everything snapped off and twisted off, they said, wow, it's not like this anywhere else in the County. But I'm convinced that our house was spared because we were down there just praying, God, don't let it come mm-hmm. off the foundation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, so I think there's a lot of power there. <laughs> yeah. Well, there, something like that happens in nearly every disaster I've been to. Really inexplicable. And tornadoes mm-hmm. are the worst. They, 
I've seen tornadoes destroy a house, but have a bottle of shampoo still sitting on the side of the um, the side of the tub with the top the screwed off tub. and sitting next mm-hmm. to it. So, and I've seen entire huh. houses be destroyed except for the wall where they had all their canned food, which of course they had to throw out because you have to, after a tornado with the pressure changes, you don't know if it's clean or not anymore. But still, I mean, right. it's just uh, one house, all that was left was the concrete stoop and a key sitting there where the, it had been under the mat. Hmm. So yeah, tornadoes are tornadoes mm-hmm. are crazy. <laughs> they really are. Well, and this being a a fire tornado, you know, probably left even more devastation because you know that a tornado itself is 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 devastating. But when you mix that with a huge fire, it just destroys everything in its path. And I don't know how wide it was. Mm-hmm. But it definitely took out that entire community in a very short amount of time, less than two hours. Well, the difference is that when a tornado goes past and it's, and it's past, it's over in that spot. But if a fire tornado goes through and passes, it's, everything is still burning in that spot. So, yeah, they're much more damaging and deadly. And it was, it was fairly wide. I can't remember the exact description that I got, but it was not a ropey little fire tornado it was it had some breadth to it and it was like could take a whole house at once so it was fairly wide one of the things that father Perrin did beforehand was he um one of the parishioners came and said i'm going to dig a well here so you know you can put things in it if the fire comes and then afterwards it'll be right here if we need to try and put the church out so he did that, and then they cleared around the area, cleared the debris, the flammable debris around the area, which works really well for a grass fire. But when there's when there's stuff falling from the sky, it's eh, yeah, it helps some, but not as much as you wish it would. Right. And I also have an account here of a man named Abraham Place, and the entry is called Prejudice and Humility. It says Abraham Place, originally from Vermont, was the second largest land grower in the area. He also worked at the Peshtigo Company, yet people looked down at him because he had married a Native American woman. He regularly welcomed Native Americans to his home. They warned him that the fire was coming. To prepare, Abram and his sons created a firebreaker on their large two-story house as well as the barns. They removed dried leaves and branches around the buildings, then dug trenches three feet deep down to the moist soil devoid of fuel for a potential fire. Most people dismissed his actions as those of a crazy man who'd married a Native American woman. When the fire approached, Mrs. Place's relatives came to help save the house. They spent hours wetting and re-wetting blankets and putting them on the roof. It was probably a combination of preparedness and luck that saved the Place home, and it was one of the few buildings still standing in the three settlements in Sugarbush. Plowed fields and wet blankets are not universally effective in a firestorm. After Mm -hmm. the fire, the Place home became a field hospital. Over 50 victims walked, staggered, or were carried to the homestead. After the fire, the prejudiced neighbors didn't let their qualms about Mrs. Place keep them from seeking her home for help. Mm. It's a kind of a leveler, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> Disasters are a leveler. <laughs> yeah, and you know, and I think that that's I think that's an interesting aspect of it is that you know once people that you for whatever reason look down on, um, are still people. And she was willing to open up her home and, and help her neighbors 
who were injured, uh, no matter how they treated her beforehand. Right. Um, now, it talks a little bit about the forensic stuff that went on after this, the fire. It says, in attempting to put together a list of those who died, even people trained to deal with such tra- tragedies found themselves flummoxed. Mm-hmm. According to one report uh, filed more than a year later, fully three months of hard, laborious work have been, have, have been sent to Colonel J.H. Leavenworth in making up a list of those burns. Whole neighborhoods have been swept away without any warning or leaving any trace or recording to tell the tale. It has been a difficult task to collect the number of names and families who have wholly or partially perished, although no pains have been spared to search for survivors and to make records as nearly as correct as possible. So finding, you know, finding the, the remains and trying to identify who they were was a huge task. And one that I'm sure was pretty gruesome because burns, um, burned bodies are very difficult to, to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, very unpleasant. But a lot of those the remains that they found, though, were just bones. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I think that, that probably, except for the ones that suffocated, the ones that incinerated were... Uh, that was probably the majority of what they found. I think that people with burns, from what I've read, um, if the burns were relatively minor, like confined to a smaller space on your body, they, they survived for a while. But, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I know. But burned bodies, that not only is it difficult to look at them, but they smell. And the oh, smell yes. is, is horrible. Yeah, I worked in a burn unit for a while. It was very difficult. <laughs> It says, during the week immediately following the fire, there were many dead needing to be buried and barely enough men to do the job. Not surprisingly, many of the remains were burned beyond recognition and were consigned to mass graves, and other bodies were hardly more than bone and ash, could only be swept into large boxes. Father Pernan described the tragic attempts to lend some sort of dignity to the nearly 2,000 citizens who had perished. I had not gone far before I saw much more than I would have desired to see. All in this line had perished and perished in masses, for the vehicles were crowded with unfortunates who, flying from death, had all met all the sooner its more horrible form. In those places where the flames had enfolded their victims into a fiery clasp, nothing now was to be seen but calcined bones, charred mortal remains, and the iron circles of wheels. It was some diffi- with some difficulty the human relics could be distinguished from those of the horses. The workmen of the company were employed in collecting these sad memorials and burying them by the wayside, there to remain till such a time that friends of the dead might wish to reclaim them and inter them in a more suitable manner. So just the massive result, you know, of... of trying to deal with all of the human remains and trying to to do it in a way that was at least somewhat civil, Mm -hmm. you know, but on such a great scale with so few people left to do the work, it must have been just overwhelming. Yeah. A lot of PTSD, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. And that's something that people had to just suck it up and push down for the rest of their lives. Um, Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I was, we recently were talking to a, a missionary to India this is kind of along those lines of the PTSD. And 
he'd been um, in the the Middle East for several years as a, a military um, person and then went back as a missionary. But one of the things that he said that it's been found in research that those who suffer from PTSD in many ways are are people who have never seen death. Um, they said that people who have been in battle who are from like rural areas where they've been on farms, where maybe they've seen animals butchered and things like that fare much better in a battle situation because the shock of the death to someone who's never seen it is so devastating that they really suffer much more from the PTSD than those who have witnessed death in the past. Mm-hmm. So, so I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Well, and that makes sense because mm-hmm. I know I've, uh, you have chickens and you eat them and you prepare them yourself. And I look at a chicken and go, I don't know if I could do that to that poor little chicken because <laughs> I haven't ever done it. <laughs> I haven't been that hungry. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, I think that people are so far removed from the actual um, state of life as far as life and death. It's become so sanitized and people have not been in the presence of somebody when they've passed away. Very few people have ever seen that. And that's Mm -hmm. not to say that that's wrong or bad, but it's just the difference in people who have witnessed that, who have a little different viewpoint and a little different response than those Mm who have never seen that kind of tragedy. So, Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think that because used to be people died in their homes. I mean, they became ill and mm-hmm. they were taken care of and then they passed away in their homes. And, and, uh, right. Well, even when our father passed and away. And the family was there with them. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. And not, and not only that, but yeah. people could come and say goodbye to him or they called him and said mm-hmm. goodbye to him. So he was, from the time he was right. told that he had inoperable cancer till the time that he passed away was about what, four weeks Thanksgiving yeah, about to that. December yep. 1st. Because it well, was the end of October. Three weeks, yeah. December 4th, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so. When I came, he had just two, he lived two weeks beyond when I came to mm-hmm. to Texas. So, yeah. Yeah, and that was that was probably a week or two after um, we'd found out about it. He'd so. gotten home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Very quick. Mm-hmm. But, but not so quick as to leave everybody in shock. He's very thoughtful. Right, right. He well, he was he he did help us prepare for that as much as you can prepare for it. Mm-hmm. You know, but yeah, he did. Yeah. So, in light of the uh, disaster that we've talked about today, I think we can come away with the idea that you know, death is a part of life. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it's a very difficult part of life. But when it's on such a large scale, it's it's just really saddening and devastating, especially for those who survived and saw the destruction that occurred. So. Yeah, and you know, the, sometimes the difference between living and dying in a situation like that is a snap decision. And in situations where, like, we stayed at the spring, but my brother took his child and tried to get to the river and didn't make it. I mean, it makes you, Mm -hmm. it gives you that guilt of how come I survived and he didn't. And it also can give you purpose as to, as to I survived, so I must have survived for a reason. And then they spend the rest of their lives trying to Mm -hmm. justify that reason, which is not a bad thing, but 
you know, it's uh, mm-hmm. from what I've observed, what, what happens to you in a situation like that, um, part of it has to do with preparation, but the other is just plain luck. You know, the fire mm-hmm. will come up to a point or and providence. turn yep. one direction or the other and miss. And uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of difficult feelings with any kind of disaster, especially where there's loss of life. Right. And I think that survivor guilt is difficult, especially in a family situation, because, you know, you think, oh, why did I survive? And that person didn't survive, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's, it is a difficult thing to cope with. But thankfully, there's help and there's people you can talk to about it now in this time that we live in. Back then, mm-hmm. maybe not so much, you know, but, but now we definitely have the resources available. So That's right. it's good to know. Yeah. And I try to steer people to those whenever I talk to them, you know, they don't want to go and see a shrink. They're not crazy. And I'd say it's not about that. It's about something that has happened to you that you've never had to deal with before. And a lot of times I tell them, you need to go do this so that you can help your children. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, too, you know, to be able to process something that you just to have someone to talk to about it mm-hmm. is going to help you. And it's not a sign of weakness, nor is it a sign of, of mental illness or anything else. It's just that sometimes there's so much there that you just can't process it by yourself. You need somebody to, to talk to about it. Right. And I also find that in the act of putting that kind of an experience into words, um, it actually helps organize it in your brain. And if you tell it, you have to tell the story mm-hmm. a certain amount of times before you can live with it. And so right. being able to tell that story is important, especially in a non-judgmental environment, you know, where, not where people right. are saying, oh, this again. No, she has to tell it a certain amount of times right. and then, then she can file it, you know, she has to organize it and then it can be filed. And, yeah. and that's, I think, pretty much what your brain does. Well, I think too, there's a principle, you know, of, of rejoice with those that rejoice and weep with those that weep, you know, to be able to sit with someone and allow them to, to weep and to be able to express their emotion and their feeling is a very valuable thing. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when they come to the place where they can actually accept it or, you know, you can rejoice with them that they've gotten a victory over it. So it, it is important to be there for people who've gone through disasters um, and to provide them that sounding board. I'm usually not around long enough for the rejoice with them part. I usually go home like kind of in between the weep and the rejoice because right <laughs> because yeah, well, by that's that your time job. They, they don't need me yeah. anymore yeah right your job is finished in that respect but at the same time you know that somewhere down the line you know for the most part they're going to be able to come to the place where they can deal with it and accept mm-hmm. it if they do it in a healthy way you know yeah so. and then i find occasionally somebody who's never going to get over it never right and yep. you just they just can't get their head around it well, that's, that's yeah. I think, uh, we pretty much handled that subject. I didn't see a St. Francis in there anywhere. Both of the churches... I didn't that, either. The churches that Father Perrin were involved with were both uh, Our Lady's churches. Our Lady. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Yeah. Yep. So no St. Okay, Francis well, here. Okay, well, I guess no Francis this time around, but... There's probably a St. Francis uh, we'll church. We'll keep an eye out for him next time. <laughs> okay. Keep yeah, right. <laughs> we'll have to check it out. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, it's great talking with you. Same here. Thank you.
Disaster Tales theme music is by Stephanie Cerny. You can check out our website at www.disastertales.com and you can contact me at kate at disastertales.com. Thank you for listening. Today's disaster tip comes from the Peshtigo fire and other fires. One of the reasons that some of the places survived was the preparation that they put in when they saw the fire was coming. It's important to remove flammable debris from around your home, especially if you live in a place that has a high wildfire probability like I do. Also, they... um, they actually cleared an area around their home. In California, they suggest that you, you clear about 30 feet all the way around your home and then put in plants that are low to the ground, that hold a lot of water, and are less likely to catch fire. That and, and then when in building, if you try to build with non-flammable materials, if you build a brick home, if you don't have tar shingles on the top, a lot of, lot of homes in this area have, well, they have fire-resistant shingles, but some of them actually have tile shingles or metal roofs, and that helps keep the fire from spreading into the house. I have seen situations where in a post and beam situation where the fire actually gets sucked in under the house and burns it from the inside out. So it's important to be aware of your surroundings and to do as much preparation as possible so that there will be as little damage as possible to your home.